If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Let's talk about Alex Preston's launch this week. Alex, who was on the show, so I so two weeks, three, four weeks. Yeah, if you're uh, listening to this in the future, fifteen years ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I had a really nice day on Wednesday. I went. If anyone's listening to this who listened to our last episode, you will have heard me talking about Rosemary Tonks, the poetry of Rosemary Tonks. So I I booked a day at the British Library to read one of her novels because uh, they're all out of print and they go for huge amounts of money and um, there's clearly some issue around them the problems about them being reprinted because when she was alive she didn't want them reprinted and there's negotiations and what have you so I, I sat in the rare books and music at the British Library and read The Bloater by uh, and tweeted some pages from it which made it look very good indeed it, it was really it's really really good I'm not sure it quite adds up to more than the sum of its parts but the parts in and of themselves fascinating from beginning to end and just the most remo- I mean it really is the most extraordinary life story I, uh, the idea I must of, say it's one of the those the destruction of all those all the, the, st- all the, the sacred objects that she'd been inherited from her aunt she, she's smashing all this, these kind of priceless antiques it's just yeah. the most odd it's that kind of fundamentalist religion of any stripe which says what use is art if it doesn't venerate the Bring us closer to God, yeah. But also, just the experience is such a pleasure. Now, you're about to go on holiday, I believe. That would be my <laughs> holiday, right? If I could have two weeks of popping into the reading rooms every day and just sitting there and reading a yeah, book. Yeah, but I'm just, that, I'm just filling what I always do when I go to Spain. I'm filling my, my bag with Lorca and, you know, it's just an excuse to read vaguely Spanish stuff because <laughs> I'm in Spain. It's a bit... You know, I go to Daunts and I'll, take, I'll have that shelf. You should read... Far be it for me to suggest. I'm also going to reread Under the Volcano, which is a very good. You know, uh, we've got that coming. We've got up. that coming up, everybody. Under the Volcano. If you have a month, um, <laughs> uh, you may need it. You should read After the Death of Don Juan by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Oh, what a great idea! Yes, very good idea. Which was recommended to me by one of the nice chaps at the LRB bookshop. I've got and he was right. It's a wonderful book. I've got a, a book I've wanted to read, which I've forgotten the title of, but it's a memoir of living in a small Andalusian village by Michael Jacobs, who's an interesting, interesting polymath scholar. So anyway, so I went from the British Library, and then I went to the launch party of Ag's Kingfisher's Catch Fire, which is our former guest Alex Preston's new book that he uh, has created in collaboration with the artist Neil Gower. And um, it was a really nice party, but it was, a, it was quite a funny thing. 
where many of the guests were former backlisted authors. <laughs> <laughs> not 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 Sylvia Townsend Warner. That, that, that would be good. Uh, but no, no. So that, so there was, so Lister Evans was there, and Catherine Taylor was there. And so Rob strictly Bound speaking, backlist to guests rather than authors. Good, yeah, well, you know, what, you know what I mean. Yeah, all right, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Make me out a liar for uh, <laughs> semantic reasons. Although yeah. Jane Austen is one of our greatest living authors. That was really great, yeah. And William Fiennes, who's our guest today, was there as well, it turns out. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty... Would you agree with me that it was a nice party? It was a fantastic party. Yes, it was. It, re- it really was. And yeah. apparently there were original artworks of uh, Neil's in... Neil Gowers, the artist, in the window of the shop, which would have been a reason. I, I, yeah. I, by the way, I couldn't go because I, well, I was um, I was watching my son play in his band at school. They're called Anonymous, and he's a drummer. And I have to say, I was really, really. The, I think I'm allowed to say that some of the musicians in the group were less gifted, but he was absolutely. They played two. Red Hot Chili Pepper song and an Arctic Monkey song, and he was bang. Oh, Arctic Monkeys! You got to be on it. Got to be on it. Very good. It was. It was. So, it, although it's a shame to miss Alex's party, it was. A, it was. We were recording the last podcast. I couldn't go to uh, my son's end of year prize giving uh, ceremony where he won a prize. Again, he'll never <laughs> listen to this. So, he, it, so it's fine. So he won a prize. He won a prize. I love for, this. For you know, they hand out prizes for sport and academic. Do they not do what what my son's primary school do and tip you the wing? Send you well, a, send yeah. you a text. Yes, but I could You may want to be yeah, there. Yeah, but I couldn't go because we were. Of course, you know, yeah. that backlist must this come man. first. Yeah, yeah. my other <laughs> child. <laughs> um, <laughs> Unruly adolescent. Yeah, but they. Uh, so yes, so my son won a pr- won a prize, and it was for services to the library. <laughs> Absolutely boy, true. Yeah. That's my boy. <laughs> Absolutely right, and he deserved it, and he. And he borrowed the most books, and he was... And he, and he brought them all back. Enthu- <laughs> and he enthused about the most books. So, so, uh, so, yeah, what with that and Brian Bilston? He's doing very well. Shall we... Uh, yeah. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us in our brownstone in an up-and-coming area of Brooklyn, <laughs> courtesy of Unbound, the website which brings good. authors and readers together to create something special. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, I am the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and I read too many books by women, and also <laughs> not enough books by women, uh, uh, I've been told this week by different <laughs> members of the public. Uh, joining us today is the author William Fines. William's books include The Snow Goose, The Snow Geese, damn that, and The Music Room, and he is the director and co-founder of the, the charity First Story, which aims to improve literacy and foster creativity in young people through creative writing. First Story is a charity that Unbound are always trying to find ways of, of, of supporting. But uh, how long is it? How long is it? You started it. In what year? Was it's it? nearly ten years ago, and um, I, I'm not. I'm not the director now. We have a fantastic um, director called Monica Pohl and a brilliant team. But it's nearly ten years. I mean, it was September 2007 that I started going to a school in West London in Hounslow every Wednesday afternoon to um, sit round a table and write with about a dozen teenagers and it's just grown from there and now there are 70 writers doing that in it's the most brilliant thing all, all the writers the I know and there are lots of them who do it are, are really passionate about it and, and I think what's lovely is not only is it brilliant for the kids it's amazing for the writers as well well I always thought from my own experience, it was a sort of a public health intervention on behalf of writers. I mean, <laughs> uh, it was just 
I, in fact, I was writing the music room when I started going out to Cranford Community College in Hounslow and was finding it sort of incredibly lonely and writing basically being an arena for self-criticism, as I thought then, go on thinking. Uh, and every Wednesday afternoon, <laughs> I, would go and, I, would, I would go and sit with these fantastic teenagers and would be reminded about how exciting voices and images and characters and stories were. And, yeah, it would always send me back home sort of buzzing and feeling that it wasn't a terrible chore and a curse to be writing a book, but actually a great luxury and and mm. sort of privilege yeah no it, it's um it's it really and the the the, the quality of that i've been to mm. some of the events the quality of the writing is just it is staggering well yeah, yeah that's that was always a bit galling because you'd sit around a table and i'd <laughs> i'd suggest to the to the students you know something we were going to write about or or some little exercise or game and then i would always write with them and share and you know would be completely outshone every time and and so you had to kind of make sure your self-confidence wasn't too shaken by that but yeah just um very very um exciting thing to be involved with and 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 i think the message really of it is that writing is or should be a source of not just of pleasure but a source of power and um which trying to spread that message through schools as widely as possible and particularly the kinds of schools that you know might not have I mean, writers visiting and that kind of thing. Absolutely, that's mm. the that's the brilliant thing. It really mm. is going to going to the schools that wouldn't normally get this kind of yeah. attention. It's and, 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 and one would have to say that you know, did you say you've been doing this for ten years? We're just coming up to ten years. I think actually next year is our tenth anniversary. It feels yeah. like something that would have been very important ten years ago, but is even more important now. You know, to to give the opportunities to people when the the when those opportunities seem to be shrinking. Yes, I mean, I think there are, you know, various other organisations, I mean, people like Arts Emergency and, and, and that are trying to maintain a kind of a, a place for the arts in, um, in, in the school day. And, I mean, of course, there's so much pressure on, on exam results and so on, which is really important for students too. But... Um, uh, yeah, I think I think just just holding on to that idea that um, everybody has a voice, and um, you know we'd hope hope in the school years to release that voice or find a, or take away the constrictions and 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 barriers that might might smother it. And I was looking yeah. on the on the Twitter feed, and mm-hmm. quite a lot of the books get uh, the stories get published in. In, a, in book form, don't they? Yeah, we've always put a big e- emphasis on that. So all the, the writers in residence in the schools, they go in once a week and, and, and run these writing workshops. And then at the end of the school year, we do a... Well, as night professionally produced as we can, and we get wonderful book designers do the covers, and we, and we make these anthologies of the students' work. And I think that was that's really important part of it because these then stay in the school library. They live in the school library. Pretty, Some yeah. schools have printed off... have you know, bought hundreds of copies to distribute to their feeder schools to show, look, what our students can do. Teachers use them as teaching resources as well, so that, you know, rather than studying a poem by Caroline Duffy, they might study a poem by, <laughs> yes. you know, well, uh, Rapia, who was in the school that That's previous brilliant. year. And, and, yeah. and yeah. Tell, just say uh, National mm-hmm. Writing Day. What? Well, yeah, well, I mean, the problem with first... Not the problem with first story, but inevitably it's quite a sort of intensive process because, you know, we 
pay fellowships to, to writers to do it, and obviously there's the cost of producing the anthologies and so on. So we'd like to do it in every school in the country, but, but even doing it yeah, in 70 no. schools involves quite a lot of fundraising. So we're always thinking about how to, to spread this message a bit more widely and say to young people in schools everywhere that your life is interesting, your way of seeing the world is interesting and valuable, you have a voice, writing is a source of pleasure and a source of power, it's not a chore or just try and say all of those things. And also we wanted to get together with many of the other organisations and agencies that are really in the same sort of boat or, or wanting to um, say the same kind of things. So we we had this idea of doing a day, a, a campaign that was, would be a day about writing, and so sat round the table with the National Literary Trust and the Arvon Foundation and the Royal Society of Literature and all the regional writing agencies and lots and lots Brilliant. of other yeah. bodies to, to get together and do... Uh, so the National Literary Trust on National Writing Day, which was June the 21st, um, launched a big report on writing with young people, and, and, and then these agencies all over the country really did wonderful things um, all, all day, and it... It just, um, yes, we didn't really expect quite how it would yeah, no, it's catch good. on because we mm. were doing it on a bit of a shoestring. But, but um, uh, it just, I know there's a plethora of days now and you can't really get through a day without it being the national. And even National Writing Day was also National Selfie Day and, <laughs> and something like World Giraffe Day as yeah, well. I love um, it. And National Yoga Day. So there were people trying to take a selfie of themselves writing in a yoga, yoga. pose with a giraffe. Fantastic. So all, there was all of that going on. Oh, Welcome. That old <laughs> Welcome to the 21st century. But actually a writing day, and it brought in lots of things I didn't expect, like, um, uh, you know, people, people at home who were writing used it as a sort of, well, now I'm going to go back to the novel I stopped writing, and now I'm going to write, aim to write a thousand words a day or whatever it was. Lots of people who were involved in writing for well-being, so in hospitals and mental health centres and so mm-hmm. on, who were doing... Uh, you know, journaling and that kind of stuff. But it was really exciting. And I, yeah, I really hope, hope it'll happen again next year in an even, even bigger way. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, you're, you're here more as a reader than a, than a writer to talk about a, uh, a book, mm. a 1970s book, Paula Fox's um, 1970s novel of societal and marital collapse, Desperate Characters, but um, which is... I, I, Yes, what it says on my sheet of paper here. But before that, um, maybe now is the time, Andy, to say, uh, what have you been reading this week? Uh, so I've been reading, uh, I actually read this several weeks ago, um, and uh, it got bumped by my enthusiasm for Rosemary Tonks last time. But I've, I, I've read a book, a new book by Adam Scovell. Adam Scovell? Adam Scovel. Always the problem. I'm going to say Adam Scovell. Or Scovel. Scovel. Don't know. I'm sure Adam would tell us. He'll let us know. Um, Called Folk Horror, Hours Dreadful and Things Strange. And it's a history of folk horror. Do you, uh, (laughs) wise gentlemen gathered around this table, know what folk horror is? Uh, Yes. A bit. Well, I'm just seeing the, the Wicker Man yeah. uh, is all, all, all yeah. around. And, and, and that blood on Satan's claw. Okay, so the, so the three unholy texts <laughs> of folk horror, they're sort of, it's a 60s and 70s TV and film genre, identified, identified by Adam in the book, are The Wicker Man, you are quite right, 
The blood on Satan's claw. You are quite right. And there's one, there's one more. What would it be? Would it be the Witchfinder General? Witchfinder General. You are right. Now, have we all seen all three of those films? I haven't seen I have, actually. Yeah. I haven't seen Blood on Satan's Claw. Oh. oh. It, <laughs> it has so many, it has a strong, so many good things It has going a strong flavour. <laughs> um, it's a distinctive flavour. It's actually brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant film. I, I watched it on YouTube. But I, I don't know how I ended up watching it now, but not that long ago. I mean, maybe two years ago. Yeah. And it was completely gripped me because it was, a, it, it, it was raunchy. There's no doubt about it. I, I'm forgetting the name of the incredibly strikingly beautiful girl who became a sort of. Minor, I'm going to say it's Linda Hayden. I think it is. I think it is pretty much. I think you're right that it's Linda Hayden. But it has some. It's some fabulous uh, cameos from you know fruity English Indeed. character actors. Indeed. And it's the Civil War, which I'm, I, I have a bit of a uh, as a note. William does as well. I have, a bit of a, I have a bit of a love for that period, as, as is Witchfinder General. And one of the things that's so interesting about the book that Adam points out in the book is, and this is a sign about, we were talking about the you know, hashtags and the world in mm. which we live now, you know, folk horror as a, as a genre dates all the way back to 2010. Really? Okay. It says in that the term is first used in a documentary by Mark Gatiss that was on BBC okay. Four. Yeah, yeah. Who is you know, it? or seven years ago, right? And in that time, it's this thing which, partly because of people's enthusiasm and people having access to a lot of this material via DVD and via YouTube in a way that they wouldn't have done, or the internet, they wouldn't have done. Well, so we will be talking about those three films. We will be talking about as Nigel Neal's work, like the Stone Tape, we will be talking about the BBC adaptations. Children of, of the Stones. Children of the Stones, absolutely. The Owl we'll be Service. Talking about the Owl Service, lots yeah. of Alan Garner. We will be talking about the BBC adaptations to M.R. James, Ghost Stories, yeah, 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 yeah. To the Curious, etc. Pender's Fen, we talked about Pender's Fen a few weeks ago, Alan Clark. Um, and Red Shift, in fact, Alan Garner as well. And um, one of the things that's really, really fascinating in the book is that Adam tries to, and succeeds, I must say, in defining what all these disparate artefacts, artefacts, these things that have been dug up from the recent past, have in common with one another. And he identifies several things. One thing is landscape. Mm -hmm. So the landscape of Britain or England is is very present as a a backdrop. Things dug up out of the earth, yeah, the beginning of, uh, of Blood on Satan's Claw. There's, yeah. there's a, there's a, a bit of. I think it's just a bit of a shoe or something on the on the on a ploughed field. Yeah. And, the, uh, it's and the island, the summer isle, and the Wicker Man, and you know. Uh, so there's that. There's the idea of an individual stumbling into a closed society yeah, yeah. with disastrous consequences for both themselves and the society. <laughs> What's odd about it, though, because that trope is already being satirised, you know, mercilessly. American Werewolf in London, you know, the, mm. the, the slaughtered ram where they wander into the... Mm. So it's, it's I mean, it, you're looking really only at sort of late 60s to, to late well, 70s. That's, funnily enough, that is the third... What is the other thing that these have in common? It's got to be a lot of flute on the soundtrack. It's really true. It's, yeah. it's Freddie Jones chewing the scenery Ooh, in all yeah. of them as well. Yes. well they're basically all things that, but they, they, this is a serious point. They're all things that are made in the 60s or 70s. Yeah. And Adam makes the point that actually there's, a, there's a, a fascinating thing going on simultaneously in kind of historical drama which is being dug up from the 60s and 70s, which is itself commenting on the era in which it was made. So I'm, I'm just going to show you the cover of the book. What do you notice about that photograph? 
Um, the colour. Okay, yeah. so so <laughs> yeah. this is a photograph of a woman being dragged towards a pyre to be burnt. Yeah. Uh, it's from the film uh, Witchfinder General. What do you notice about the picture? It's very vivid in its colours. Anything else? Well, there's, there's a modern house in the background. There's a modern house in the background, exactly. So there's a brilliant picture on the front of this book, which you won't notice straight away, of uh, a kind of... Um, uh, uh, sort of people in peasant costumes, and then in the background, a very nice bar at home. Um, I'm just going to read this little bit before we, because I think it will give you a flavour of the book. And Adam says, In April 2014, I was working on an essay on the music used in folk horror films when I was confronted with a rather intriguing photograph. At first, I believed it to be merely another film still with the potential to illustrate a thematic point in the essay for when it was eventually to be put online. There was, however, something unnerving about it. The image showed a beautiful summer's day in a rural backdrop, depicting a group of medieval characters dragging a woman up a hillside. This was supervised by some sort of religious figure in a black cloak while onlookers watched from afar further down the hill. The still was from Michael Reeves' Witchfinder General, specifically from the film's opening scene, which was analysed in an earlier chapter. The image is disturbing, capturing the essence and casual brutality of Reeves' film. But something was still not quite right overall. On closer inspection, the uncanny element, one that was sparking several ideas thematically, was that there was a surprisingly modern house just <laughs> down the hill in full view. Further into the photographs of Easter, several more modern houses can be seen in a variety of Suffolk pinks and pastels. <laughs> the events depicted in the photo were not taking place in darker times long since past, but in 1968, in the days of the popularisation of the counterculture. What was shocking about the photo was that this aspect did not at first present itself as anachronistic to the action that was taking place, but fundamentally was actually a part of it. Of course, barbaric violence, skewed belief and moral systems and implicit, direct misogyny could be perceived as normalised in this era. This was the late 1960s, and in taking into account folk horror's most popular examples, the early 1970s were naturally a hyper-extension. Throughout this book, the overriding feeling of being haunted by an era should have been building, suggesting that something odd was in the water during the late 1960s, sowing the seas towards the wealth of horror to come in the 1970s diegetically within such fictional examples, but, quintessentially, also non-diegetically in 1970s Britain itself. In other words, what he's doing in the book, and very convincingly, is setting up a, a case that says you're watching films or you're reading books that have three time zones happening simultaneously. Yeah. The fictional one, mm. the one in which they were made and how we feel about both those different time zones right now. It's much like reading Redshift, which sort of yes, does that. I mean, exactly, yeah. And it's also, focused, I have to say, bullet. in terms of research, is fantastic. You would read this he, book um, and want to see most he, of the I things mean, that he talks for about. For those of you who like it, he, run, he writes a great blog called Celluloid Wicker Man, yeah. which he publishes on a Monday, which is one of the few blogs that I bookmark and read each week. It's really, really good. Uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, folk horror... Hours Dreadful and Things Strange by Adam Scovell, published by Auteur. John, what have you been reading this uh, week? I've been reading a, uh, a terrific uh, new collection of short stories by Sarah Hall. Uh, Sarah Hall, probably better known as a novelist, um, although she is winning people and prizes uh, over for her short stories. Uh, she's one of my favourite contemporary English writers. Uh, Horsewater, story of a, the, the village in, in the Lake District that was inundated. Um, 
in the 1950s, the Cahullan army, uh, latest one, the Wolf Border. She writes, I think, as well as anybody in, in, in contemporary English fiction about, about the strange liminal kind of worlds we live in between the edges of cities. This, this book is full of stories about uh, mortuaries, hospital wards. Uh, it's, full of, it's full of odd sciences. There's an amazing short story about somebody who is writing a letter to his, his, his family apologising for having invented or being a, a drug which has led to a sort of a massive explosion of a virus. The first story in the book, the one that I think everybody... Uh, it won a... Uh, uh, the, what was it? Yes, the BBC National Short Story Award called Mrs Fox. Appropriately for this particular podcast. Yes, it, it is. Struck me. Well, it is, and it's about, it's about a man, a middle-class man and, and his wife and his, what, the wife. They go for a walk in the countryside and she turns into a fox, not in any kind of Ted Hughesy, you know, thought foxy way. Um, <laughs> I'll, read, I'll read a little bit about the, mm. the transformation. Uh, she's just... She's, I love these stories because these are stories that really don't care whether you like them or not. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no attempt to sort of, um, to sort of plea bargain with the reader. There's no neat endings. Often the characters, yeah. the correct characters, the characters feel unknowable. The resolutions are are, are either withheld or, or deferred. But the language is strong. The imagination is strong. She loves. I, I can only imagine, I mean, I, I know Sarah a little bit, that she was exposed to a lot of the best bits of Doctor Who and Survivors as a child. There are always, there's an amazing story in this. Folk horror. In the, is, is a, well, yes. I mean, there's an amazing story in here where the, you know, climate change has happened and what's destroying the planet is wind. And this man is, is having to sort of negotiate his way through a completely destroyed city, through homes with people, corpses in. And, and you know, the birds have been destroyed. Everything has been, it's just massive. So she's, she's great at doing those. Those those um, those big kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, almost high concept sci-fi fantasy yeah. uh, scenarios, but what makes them great is they're all about dysfunction, miscommunication. There's an absolutely brilliant last story in the book, a sexy story called Evie, where a, a woman just suddenly becomes incredibly promiscuous and her behaviour changes. And I won't get... I mean, it, it's resolved to an extent at the end, but not really quite. It's such a great bit of writing. She's, she's the... Nobody writes... I think contemporary writers I know writes, writes more convincingly about, about sex from a pretty much, I mean, kick-ass female perspective. I, no... I read um, Mrs Fox on the way uh, up to uh, record today uh, after uh, purchasing a copy... For a pound from uh, Oxfam uh, in Marlebone High Street before the party we were talking about earlier, and uh, so and it's a proof as well. So whoever, if favour you're listening to this, somebody selling your proof to flogging your proof straight away. Um, and uh, <laughs> there's a really I ha- that's happened to me. You see your own book in a charity shop before it's, it's been published. Yeah, it's really you know, depressing. It's a bit of a downer. Yeah, so, with um, the inscription, "Dear Dad." Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> this one's for you. Yeah. Um, but it has a it has an epigraph by um, James Salter, and of course she yeah, wrote yeah. the introduction she did. Uh, to a sport in the pastime. And I, I, yeah, I think on the recent edition, and the, that is Salter's epigraph here: is the more clearly one sees this world, the more one is obliged to pretend it does not exist. Yeah. And that feels really 
true, actually, to, to how she approaches the scenarios that she then goes on and writes. I mean, I, I'm going to just read a little bit. She, I, mean, I just think she's an outstanding... Some of these stories, you, you know, you, you, you just go... Again, it's, you want to read them several times. But this is the, the great moment, the walk, husband, wife, I don't walk, and the, the, the wife has run on ahead. She turns her head and smiles. Something is wrong with her face. The bones have been recarved. Her lips are thin and her nose is a dark blade. Teeth small and yellow. The lashes of her hazel eyes have thickened and her brows are drawn together. An expression he has never seen. A look that is almost craven. A trick of kiltering light on this English autumn morning. The deep cast of shadows from the canopy. He blinks. She turns to face the forest again. She's leaning forward, putting her hands down, lifting her bottom. She has stepped out of her laced boots and is walking away. Now she is running again on all fours, lower to earth, sleeker, fleeter. She is running and becoming smaller, running and becoming smaller, running in the light of the reddening sun, the red of her hair and her coat falling, the red of her fur and her body loosening, running, holding behind her a sudden brazen object, white-tipped, her yellow scarfs, trails in the briar, all vestiges shed. She stops, within calling distance, were he not struck dumb. She looks over her shoulder, topaz eyes glinting, scorched face, vixen. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. It's really good. I thought the place that, the, yeah, the, the detonation of the word vixen in yeah. that is particularly splendid, actually. Really pleased you chose that. Her, her first collection, The Beautiful Indifference, yeah. is absolutely fantastic. I mean, it, it's one of those books of stories that really holds together the whole collection. There's no kind of weak link in it and it's strange how stories linger the first and last I think there's a one at the beginning about a, a horse there's this sort of decaying horse that's been locked up in a barn and then one at the end about I think a woman rowing out in a boat into the middle of a lake in Scandinavia somewhere that it's just in my head as if it was a dream I'd had years ago fantastic I know I just think she has this ability to to, to, to summon stuff so with such economy mm. but she it's it's there's something mu- really muscular there's an amazing kind of amazing strength to her to both to her imagination but also her, her, her you know she grips you mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite I, I want to go back and read that collection because she seems to me on the face of this one of the most I like stories, short stories. Mm. And it's interesting that her last two books have been stories. I mean, I, th- I think The Wolf Border, which I, I have but haven't read, is. Uh, but you know, she, I, she's been nominated twice, I think, for yeah. the Booker. So that's, Amazing um, writer. So that's Madame Zero by Sarah Hall. That's published by Faber. Anyway, before we get into the main event, which is, uh, you know, crouching, uh, <laughs> arching its back and rubbing up against the, uh, the window... <laughs> Uh, it's time for our regular new look at a book published by Unbound, and tonight it's the, it's the, the turn of Pete Brown. Pete Brown, hooray. Who is, uh, who is the world's most brilliant writer on beer, and this indeed is a book about beer. And why beer, with its four ingredients, is at least three times more complex and interesting than wine. <laughs> Take it away, Pete. So, my name is Pete Brown. Uh, I'm the author of a new book called Miracle Brew, which is the, I guess, the natural history of beer. Uh, and what beer's made from. 
And the reason I love writing about beer so much is that it goes back to the birth of civilization and it's universal and it touches most people's lives. And so you can write history, you can write politics, you can write philosophy about beer if you want. And uh, I wanted to write a book about the sort of natural life of beer because most people I speak to believe that beer is made from, at a guess, hops, whatever they are, and chemicals, uh, which is a real shame because beer is the biggest selling alcoholic drink in the world. It's second only to tea and coffee in terms of how many people drink it. And at a time when we're really interested in our food and drink, where it comes from, what it's made from, uh, beer seems to be this curious exception uh, that people don't really know very much about. And that's a real shame because the stories behind each of beer's four main ingredients, hops, barley, yeast and water, are individually fascinating. And together, they're absolutely incredible. Uh, This is one of those books that grew in the telling. Uh, I started off thinking that I had most of the the material I needed. Uh, And then as soon as I started working on it and people got to hear about it, they said, oh, well, you want to come and come to my... uh, maltings or come to my hop farm I ended up traveling across three continents uh, in search of the best ingredients Uh, so I was picking hops in Kent uh, in the Yakima Valley in Washington State uh, and in Tasmania which are three of the most exciting hop places in the world (laughs) they've all got kind of similar climate and uh, and the just the magic of of picking hops is, is is quite wonderful I like to write for a general reader rather than just beer geeks. Beer geeks are very welcome to read my books and and hopefully find not too much wrong. But I love to uh, get a generally curious reader uh, and teach them something that they didn't know, perhaps they didn't feel they needed to know. And then when they finish the book, they go, wow, that was such a journey. Uh, It's meant to be entertaining, you know, beer is fun. It's a fun drink. It's meant to be kind of informal and casual. So I write in that sort of way. It's not hugely technical. Uh, I'm not a technical person. Uh, I'm a a sociable person who enjoys a drink. And uh, I guess when I... When I know I've done something right is when people say things like, oh, it was like a really interesting conversation at a bar stool. It would be a very long conversation to have at a bar stool, which is why I've put it in a book. Miracle Brew by Pete Brown is available now from all good bookshops or direct from the Unbound website. If you're a backlisted listener, you can get a special discount by entering the code BACKOFF, that's B-A-C-K-O-F-F, when you get to check out. That was Pete Brown. If you are going to the Green Man Festival this year... Do not miss Pete Brown's annual event on the book stage on Friday. It's always the first event on the Friday. He has laboriously matched up tunes by bands who are playing at the Green Man Festival with the most appropriate beer that you could drink (laughs) at the Green Man Festival. The Green Man Festival also, as anyone who's who's been will know, has a drinking courtyard with 200 beers different beers available and that event that Pete does is absolutely brilliant because first of all he's very erudite uh, he's very funny he knows about beer and second of all they give away loads of free beer so so you might want to attend what's not to like yeah (laughs) hey it can't all be book chat smoke Chesterfields this episode is brought to you by Etsy sound the gifting panic alarm you need to get an amazing gift Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about Desperate Characters by Paula Fox. William, you chose this book for us. John, had you read it before? No, no. And had I mean, I'm ashamed to say I had a vaguest notion that Paula Fox was a someone interesting. No, I think I'd maybe read an obituary or a, maybe before that an interview a couple of years. Couple, she died in July this yes, year. Yes, she right? died in March so this year. Yeah. I think by that stage I was always already switched on because we. I think we already discussed doing the podcast, but it's yeah. I mean, what, again, what in, in slightly in the tradition of this podcast, blown away by yeah. this, the, the, really blown away. I, I'd read it a couple of years ago and really liked it, but I must say, coming back to it to read it for the podcast... Read it in anger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> coming back to it, furious to have to read it again. Um, no, not at all. I, I, lo- I really loved it on second reading. I think I liked it on first reading, but I couldn't quite. I'm not sure I understood. I'm not sure I understood I, it on second I reading. I started but, but. to reread it immediately. Yeah. I was, I was, I was. It's such. I mean, we won't maybe go into the detail of the ending, but it was so powerful. So, William, where did you first uh, run across this book or Paula Fox? Or well, I, I had a very specific memory of it, and I, I think one of the reasons I chose it was because um, having heard some of the podcasts before, I know. It's obviously about celebrating books, but also celebrating the sort of word-of-mouth transmission of books mm-hmm. and one person passing on uh, an enthusiasm or a passion for a book to another and and how books are sort of kept alive that way. Um, and I really do have a very specific moment of somebody saying to me, you've got to read this, and it was um, uh, at a writer's event. It was at the Dublin Writers' Week, and I was there talking about the music room, and there was a sort of gathering of the other writers, and I was in a conversation with with the novelist Maria Highland, brilliant novelist MJ Highland, and also uncategorizable writer Jeff Dyer, brilliant writer Jeff Dyer. Uncategorizable Jeff Dyer. At one point Maria said, okay, now everyone should say a book that maybe the others won't have heard of, but have have to read. And I think I said um, The Transit of Venus by Shirley Hazard, which I'm always saying uh, to everybody basically, even if they don't ask me for a recommendation. And Jeff, I think, said something quite show-off-y, like... Um, uh, <laughs> I can't believe that. <laughs> but I think, I think it was Black Lamb and Grey Falcon by Rebecca West. But I, I did see that was about a 1,000 pages, so I, ve- I, veered, <laughs> I veered away from that. And Maria, MJ Highland, said Desperate Characters by Paula Fox. And I kind of pretended I'd heard of Paula Fox because I was wanting to seem that I was, you know, at the, at the same table as these writers I admired. But I hadn't ever heard of Paula Fox. And I did dutifully and quickly go and seek out Desperate Characters. And it's been strange because it, it totally blew me away when I read it first. And I've read it now twice since then. And it's a very mysterious book. I think one the sort of hallmarks of great works, not just of literature, but 
anything else is that they give you more as you go back to them and they get bigger and seem bigger as you go back to them and this does it works in images in terms of plot it's quite sort of small it's on one level a story about a woman who gets bitten by a cat (laughs) and worries about whether she should go to the doctor or not but it's sort of TARDIS-like in how much is, is, is crammed in there, well, the spaces it opens out into. I'm suddenly remembering Robert McFarlane wrote a really nice thing about Emily Dickinson poems when he said that you read an Emily Dickinson poem, it's like going into a bungalow and finding that you're inside a cathedral. Oh, it's a beautiful, <laughs> a, a beautiful observation, but I think there's something like that about this book. It's 150 pages long. It's a novella, really, but its force and its its sense of how much life is packed into it. I'm going to ask you to read something from it, maybe in a moment. I just want to... We often read the blurb from the back of the book, and actually in this case I think it's quite important for people to, if they haven't read the book, fix mm. where and when it's yeah. happening, because I think that's a very important part of what's going on in this novel. So the, here's the blurb. It comes garlanded with quotes from... Jonathan Franzen, who we will talk about later, but also the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, and the TLS. Uh, So you can see where it's being pitched. And here is the blurb. It is the 1960s, and Sophie and Otto Bentwood live in an elegantly restored Brooklyn apartment with a complete Goethe and two shelves of French poets in the drawing room. (laughs) (laughs) After Sophie is viciously bitten on the hand while trying to feed a starving cat, a series of small and ominous disasters begin to plague their lives. A rock is thrown through the window. Sophie receives a late-night anonymous phone call. A stranger appears, asking for money, and their Long Island weekend home is vandalised. Over the course of just a few days, the Bentwoods are wrenched out of complacency, unearthed from the carapace of ordinary life as they realise that it is not only their marriage, but also society itself that has come so perilously and tragically undone. What do you think? I think the blurb writer should rein it in a little yeah, bit on, on, on that one. I mean, Talk about spoilers. Exactly, a few, a few spoiler alerts. But also, in some ways, it actually diminishes the book a little to pump up the themes like that about society crumbling, because it makes it sound like it's... Yeah. Uh, in some way kind of um, preachy or, 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 or coming at you with, with big themes. Actually, it comes at you with odder. details. It's much odder. The book is just much mm. odder than that. The originality of it is that just at the moment when you think you've got it, you, you, you know, you've got it under your... Yeah. You, you know yeah. what's going on. She'll write a paragraph that completely... Compl- I, I, I must... It's always just out of, out of reach, this book. That's why you want to read it again. I you- must stick up for the blurb, right? <laughs> one of the things that I thought when I read the book the first time was... Because this book was out of print for many years and did not sell many copies when it first came out. It, <laughs> this is a tough book to sell. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what the blurb is trying to do. Yeah. But I agree with you. It's a, it's a hard one to... to, to Um, talk about in those terms without seeming to make it melodramatic yeah it resists melodrama although sort of melodramatic things happen I mean we're going to have the reading I hope of the cat bit I thought as as blurbs go (laughs) as blurbs go it's um well, could yeah. you could you read us too, a little too much, bit? Too much, in, too much information. Yeah, well, so th- this is this is very near the beginning. This is the first chapter, page. This is just um, th- three or four pages in, um, and there at this 
that this they're, they're living in this house in Brooklyn. And actually, as the blurb writer um, picks up on that, there's their sort of um, hyper civilized existence. You know, the, the set of Goethe and and so on, um, and even the first paragraph. Um, which Jonathan Franzen in his introduction rather worries that might put people off, but it's very, it, it's sort of <laughs> scalpelly satirical about even the things they're having for dinner, you know, risotto yes, milanese, chicken livers. I think it's precisely, by the way, 1968. It but, is 68, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. there's a bit it, in the it, book where, yeah. which is mm. quite important. Um, so, so the fact that, that Otto and Sophie Bentwood are so, you know, they're living in Brooklyn at the, and they are the sort of pinnacle of... of Western civilization in terms of, of the clothes they wear, the music they listen to, the books they read, um, the, the the home furnishings they have. It's all, um, you know, it's all very precisely described. And well, it's not mocked exactly, but it, but but it is, you know, they're set up for a fall, I suppose. And the fall comes in the shape of a stray cat that Sophie's been feeding outside the back door. The cat had begun to clean its whiskers. Sophie caressed its back again, drawing her fingers along until they met the sharp, furry crook where the tail turned up. The cat's back rose convulsively to press against her hand. She smiled, wondering how often, if ever before, the cat had felt a friendly human touch. And she was still smiling as the cat reared up on its hind legs, even as it struck at her with extended claws, smiling right up to that second when it sank its teeth into the back of her left hand and hung from her flesh so that she nearly fell forward, stunned and horrified, yet conscious enough of Otto's presence to smother the cry that arose in her throat as she jerked her hand back from that circle of barbed wire. She pushed out with her other hand, and as the sweat broke out on her forehead, as her flesh crawled and tightened, she said, ''No, no, stop that!'' to the cat, as though it had done nothing more than beg for food. And in the midst of her pain and dismay, she was astonished to hear how cool her voice was. Then, all at once, the claws released her and flew back as though to deliver another blow. But then the cat turned, it seemed in midair, and sprang from the porch, disappearing into the shadowed yard below. It's just a fantastic a fantastic paragraph and it's not just the mm. um the sort of freeze frame or slow motion effect of uh, of the action of the cat but how she even smuggles in a commentary on the psychological situation of the marriage that sophie doesn't want to show her pain out loud in front of her husband oh, i know i mean which is such a brilliant psychological perception of people being in a couple um, and and not wanting to appear vulnerable and so on. But the fact that that's in a, a subordinate clause in the midst of this incredibly vividly rendered um, event and shock, that's a sort of microcosm of how the book works, you know, line by line. It, that, that thing about the psychological, I mean, the, the acuity, also the sense that this book is all about couples. It's like a mm. sort of nestling Russian doll set. Mm. Even the stories that get told are stories of, you know, the, that thing about the, the man beating up his wife, that extraordinary story that, get, that gets told towards the end of the book. It's all about the, the nuance mm. and the emphatic and communication. It's, it's, it's just... I think that's why you, you, you know, you're not going to get it all on a single reading. So we have a, a clip now. This is, um, appropriately enough, this is Paula Fox 
recorded in 2002 on CBC Radio, talking about cats. Well, it's so interesting about them. They seem to me, as dogs do, to have a very different, uh, subtler consciousness than they're given credit for. Of course, I don't know scientifically uh, much about them, but their awareness of the moment, I mean, the animals are said to live very much in the present, is a, a very powerful thing to me. And I feel as if... I feel a lot of respect for a certain kind of presence that they cats have and that dogs have too, and even snakes, which I'm really terrified of. <laughs> stray dogs and stray cats remind me, uh, this is one tiny element, that I was once a stray child, uh, so maybe there is that element in it, but it's not the whole thing. She mentions there being a stray child. Paula Fox had a rather extraordinary life and was rejected by her mother and father. And um, we'll talk about that a a little bit. But in her memoir, Borrowed Finery, which was published around the time she gave that interview, she talks about meeting with her mother and father at the age of five, uh, which was a very traumatic event for everybody involved. Sounds absolutely horrendous. And part of the trauma was that she was bitten by a stray cat. <laughs> and so she, she uses that in Desperate Characters, and she also uses it in one of her children's books, One-Eyed Cat as well. So the, the point is these aren't whimsical appearances by animals in her work or at the beginning of this book you were just talking about, William. These are, this is real blood that's mm. been drawn, you know. But she, her career was odd, wasn't it, because she's, she's written, she wrote many more children's books than she did adult books. And her adult books never really... I mean, she, she didn't have a sort of... I mean, Desperate Characters was 1970. Fascinatingly, she has three careers, yeah. which, which don't run parallel. They, they sort of overlap at points. She has a career as an adult novelist, which in commercial terms is unsuccessful, from the mid-'60s. She has a career as a children's author, which is very successful. She writes two dozen children's novels. I'm going to talk about a couple of them in a minute, for which she wins numerous prizes and is widely read. And also towards the end of her life, she, the last books that she writes in the, in the last 15 years of her life are memoirs. She becomes a memoirist, and I was talking about borrowed finery there. I remember that coming out. You need have read nothing by Paula Fox to read that book yeah. and find it full of the things that were remarkable about her writing. But the thing about Desperate Characters is Desperate Characters, which had been out of print, was rediscovered by Jonathan Franz, and we'll come on to that, but became, you know, a sort of literary sensation in a way that it hadn't been when it was first published at the turn of the century, I guess, early, early 21st century. What was it, William, about the book when you read it that really bowled you over? Can you remember on first reading well, I think it was a combination of things, a combination of tones. As John said earlier on, it's very mysterious. There's a mystery in it. And it's partly the mix of tones that it can be, you know, at times you feel like you're reading a horror story, actually. I don't think this is a spoiler, but later on, towards the end, Sophie and Otto have to take this cat that's bitten her to be checked to see if it has rabies. And, and so they coax it into a cardboard box. And it's essentially the scariest in a box in, um, <laughs> in, 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 in fiction. I mean, I was thinking of other 
there's there's um, there's Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box at the end of Seven. Yeah. But this is much scarier because you never actually see it in the box. You just see the stain as its fear fluids start to whatever it is it's doing in the box. Yeah. And the scratching and the noise of Nothing's the claws. Nothing's ever and so quite. You never. It's ne- um, but it's also. Um, Incredibly, sometimes incredibly beautiful and lyrical. I mean, there's a chapter when a part of the suspense of the book, there's, you know, it is, she gets bitten by a cat at the beginning. Is she going to go, does she going to get rabies? Is she going to go to hospital? So on. There's that unanswered question. In very early on in the book, too, she goes to have a strange late night drink. This is all set over a weekend. It's very, in terms of the sort of time, it's very unified and, and focused. She goes to have a drink with her at three in the morning with her husband's business partner, Charlie, and their business relationship is just breaking up while the, this weekend happens. You're never quite sure why. I mean, it's a very... Uh... You're not quite sure why. And, and Charlie, um, he's sort of making a pass at Sophie yeah. mm. when they go out for a drink and sort of wanting intelligence on Otto and at one point rather lulled into this situation and maybe it's four o'clock in the morning by now, Sophie lets slip to him she claims it's a joke, but that one day she'll tell him about her love affair. And there's, it's, it's like, you know, Chekhov saying that if you show a gun in <laughs> Act 1, it has to go off in Act 3. Yeah. Charlie then has this intelligence. He holds this over, over Sophie and Otto, the knowledge that she's been unfaithful. And the rest of the, no- the, the novel, you're thinking, is he going to use that? And Sophie's terrified that he's going to use that. So there are all of these things, and as the, our famous blurb writer um, makes clear, there are these sort of events that, that have the feel of omens and portents in themselves. They're not that huge. You know, someone's thrown a brick through a window, at a stone through a window at a party. There's an intruder in the house, guy who wants to use the phone. Uh, they go to their house in the country, and it's been invaded by people. But these things sort of gather into a sense of, yes, something huge, and flawed, about to crumble. And actually, it makes me think there's... In Jonathan Franz's introduction, he he gets stuck a little bit on the name. He doesn't like the Just, name Bentwood. Yeah, he, yeah he, Bentwood. He and I've been thinking too. about... It is a strange name, Bentwood. And uh, on the train this morning, I was thinking Bentwood is basically... It's a synonym for crooked timber. That, that's what yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. It's the crooked timber of humanity from yeah. which no straight thing can be made. So the wound is is original sin... And there's something flawed in these people, and by extension, all of us. Uh, and hence the title. Desperate characters. Which is a sort of Yes, ad- and actually the word dis- Thoreau. Thoreau and the word yeah. despair and variations of despairing and desperate. But it could also be really funny, like that first... Oh, it's brilliant. The, 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 the party that they go to on the first The night, party's brilliant. It's like Woody Allen. The party it's is like, very like know, Woody Allen. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, heard it is. all of that yeah, it, you in, could imagine, in the Woody Allen voice. Uh, that one of them could have been Jeff Goldblum and on the phone. You know, I've forgotten my mantra. Can I just read a little bit from that? Because it's so... He didn't know a thing about it, not even after 10 years, but she loved that air. This is I think he's called... Mike, or Mike, yeah, Mike. But she loved the air of knowingness, the flattery that didn't obligate her. And she liked his somewhat battered face, the close-fitting English suits he bought from a London salesman who stopped at a midtown hotel each year to take orders. The Italian shoes, he said, were part of his seducer's costume. He wasn't a seducer. He was remote. He was like a man preceded into a room by acrobats. Bang! I love that. You know, you, William, yeah. you were talking about... Um, Franz, Franzen's introduction Franzen's introduction to this edition is in itself a tiny masterpiece <laughs> yes. of how to how to um, 
sell a book to the reader while seeming not to do so. So, he, so he, like you say, he, he does a brilliant thing where he says, I'm not sure about the opening paragraph, but actually it's pretty good. Yeah. And he says, I'm not sure about the title, yeah. but actually it's pretty yeah. good. Right? And, yeah. and, and then he does this great thing where he, 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 he says really early on, and this became infamous, he, he writes this, The first time I read Desperate Characters in 1991, I fell in love with it. It seemed to me obviously superior to any novel by Fox's contemporaries John Updike, Philip Roth and Saul Bellow. It seemed inarguably great. <laughs> okay, now, and that very knowingly is put in to go, okay, I am laying down my marker here. And, and I, I, I promised our former guest, Sarah Churchwell, that I would mention this. Sarah Churchwell, reviewing... Um, Borrowed Finery in the TLS, wrote the following. She says, Franzen's introduction to Desperate Characters, for example, finds it, quote, obviously superior to any novel by Fox's contemporaries, John Updike, Philip Roth and Saul Bellow. Not only an overstatement, this is also a profitless comparison. (laughs) Fox has little of Roth's self-consciousness, less of Bellow's self-importance, and none of Updike's self-pity. <laughs> oh, well, actually, what she actually does there is trying to out Franz and Franz. Sorry, Sarah, if you're listening to this. Unlike all three men, Fox does not jealously save the best lines for a favoured alter ego. And her protagonists do not have... Sorry. And her protagonists do not have a monopoly on nuance. Instead, she distributes her formidable acumen unselfishly so that even the most minor characters can suddenly offer a crucial insight and the unsympathetic characters are often the most fascinating, brilliant, unfathomable and raging. And I think that's, I think that's fair. You know, I think the, the distribution of wisdom and lack of wisdom is one of the things that makes the, the characters feel alive to me. Yeah, definitely Franson was being provocative. And, and those... Um, I, I, I mean, I love those three guys that he, that he mentions. But, um, and they're so full of riches in their own work. But it, so in a way that the comparison is... A, you know, comparisons are odious, as John Dunn said. But I think where, you know, he, he, you could make a case is that even in the great, great works by Updike and Bellow, you know, The Adventures of Augie March, incredible book. But if it was a page shorter... No one's would really yeah, be yeah, that no, bothered. No, absolutely but right. actually, if Desperate Characters was a paragraph shorter, yeah. it wouldn't be quite yeah, the same that, thing. It, I think, yeah, it, I think it's, just, it's just the right... The very few books that are exactly the right length, and I think Desperate Characters... And actually, that formal sort of structural perfection, it's 150 pages long. It's Gatsby-like in that way. Exactly, it? Yeah. it is. At the exact centre, seventy page 72, there's a very different... There's a a, a scene where Sophie goes and have lunch with these two friends of hers, Claire yeah, and Leon, yeah. and it has a completely different tone, flavour, rhythm to the rest of the yeah. book. And it's like the comic relief in a Shakespeare play. So at the exact centre point of the book, you get this breathing space where you get this couple, Claire and Leon, who are sort of boho intellectuals, quite flamboyant, garrulous, much more sort of Rabelaisian and, and yeah. larger than life. And they, ya- they, they yammer and they... Yeah. They just talk and talk, and it's funny, and it's, and it is a breathing space between the horrors on either side. Because actually, you know, there's also a, there's also, also calls a, Leon the, the the guy with yellow skin who doesn't listen. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But there's also, you know, the the I think one of the most 
frightening sex scenes in literature yeah. as well, which comes in the second half of the book. It is a book of horrors, <laughs> yes. but, but also strangely lyrical and beautiful. And, um, you know, the, the, the little conversation with Charlie in the, in the bar at four in the morning triggers this memory of her love affair that Sophie had with a, well, bizarrely, a small independent publisher called <laughs> Francis. Um, <laughs> so reminded me of certain people, little books, certain people I'd worked books with. Books about <laughs> ferns. And, um, yeah. but the, 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 and then there we get a whole chapter when Sophie goes back and gets into bed, you know, in the early morning, about her remembering the romance with Francis. And it's, it's, it's incredibly beautiful and beautifully done. And then later on, I mean, I, I had a yeah. passage, this is later on, chapter the end of chapter 11, a book of 13 chapters, but again, it's Sophie getting... Sophie and Otto going to bed. Then she said, Oh, come to bed, and he fell heavily beside her as though he'd been struck down by a blow. She let the magazine slide to the floor, then picked up a Balzac novel from her bedside table. But Madame de Bargeton's ambition and poignant ineptitudes did not hold her attention. Her mind slid away from the page. Otto was asleep beside her. She sat up against her pillows for a long time, wondering what thing it was she was thinking about just beneath the feigned attention she was giving to those random topics that now drifted through her mind. Deliberately, she visualised the living room of their Flinders farmhouse. Then, blurring that bright, familiar place, another room began to form. The skimpy parlour of her childhood, her father and a friend speaking late into the evening while she lay drowsily on the Victorian sofa, listening to the drone of the men's low voices, feeling on her cheek the sting of a horsehair which had worked its way up through the black upholstery, safe and dreaming of the brilliance of her own true grown-up life to come. She put her hand on her cheek and touched the place where the horsehair had pricked, and she gasped at the force of a memory that could, in the space of a breath taken and released, expunge the distance between sleepy child and exhausted adult, as though, she thought, it had taken all these years to climb the stairs to bed. Utterly brilliant. It's just utterly, breathtaking. Utterly that's brilliant. three paragraphs yeah. that's just con- telescoped... Yeah. I also read for thirty-five years into into one sensuous detail of the touch of the horsehair on her cheek. It's taken her from her childhood bedroom mm. to her adult life with Otto, which is so disappointing and empty. The hopes of a child, the realities of adult life, is breathtaking, yeah. and that's in the space of twenty lines. I also think mm. that with this book, we haven't talked so much about the the, the time and place. Mm. America in the late 1960s. This is very important for this book, and I have to say, I do think it's one of the reasons why people have rediscovered it, that, that it seems to speak of that particular moment, that post-60s moment mm. where society felt like it was in freefall mm. in, in, some, in some ways, and, and there was a huge generational split. We've got another clip from the interview that I was talking about earlier where, where, where Paula Fox talks a little bit about the inspiration... Uh, the internal and external inspirations for the book. And I think I felt that very strong sense of, of, of personal breakdown and uh, the breakdown of what we call society, all as one thing. And then I in- invented this couple, but not quite invented. But I patched. Uh, it, everything is is a is a kind of quilt. You put things together from the people you know from yourself. 
Um, parts of Otto and Sophia are me. Parts of that cat are me. Parts of uh, Francis is me. And, you know, they're parts, people that I've known. But everything comes together when you sit down. And uh, I was talking about a work with a painter last evening, and and I I said, I think you make the path as you walk, you know. And I, I think that's true, if, if you're someone like me. <laughs> Personal life can be, at certain times, a reflection of what is outside, and what is outside can often be a reflection of personal life. They only rarely are two separate things, and I think uh, in Desperate Characters they, they join at certain points. It's a mark of how good the book is that actually... You know, they made a. There's a movie of Desperate Characters. I can't. Believe, I can't imagine what I'm that was. Going, I'm not <laughs> no, going. I'm not going near. So I watched it yeah. this week. I was traditional. Which I tend to watch. Yeah. The, and make and, them. And, and he does this. It's, yeah. And he does this for yeah. the rest of us. And, yeah. and uh, so it's a takes film, one for the team. It's a film starring. It's made. It was Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine. This stars Shirley MacLaine. It's got Kenneth Mars in it. It is. And what's interesting about it is... Is it a screwball comedy? You know what? It's not even a musical, man. It's. It's very faithful to the book, but it's no good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because yeah. You, can't, you, can't you can't suggest do the richness no. of the characters from yes. the bits that you were just talking about, yeah. and they don't have enough budget to plug yes. it into the societal thing that, that Paula Fox was talking about in that interview. And, I mean, the, the, and you can't do metaphor, really, in <sighs> films. So something like he, had a, he looked like a, a man who was being preceded into a room by yeah. acrobats, you, it, can't, it, you can't do all of that. And, it, like. and it's full of... It's full of um, it's full of just brilliant phrases like that. Mm. She's just an amazing technical writer mm. as much as as much as anything else. And it, <laughs> mm. uh, it, it's one of the things that's that's what I, I I guess I love about it because it I think you were saying it it's a hard sell. Mm. It's hard it's hard to say. I mean, in a, in a way that I would say it's hard. You know, Richard Ford. It's a weekend with a real estate man selling who sells real estate having a weekend with his son. It's yeah. quite hard to. Yeah. To, to imagine that you could turn that into a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel like Independence Day, yeah. in in a way, this is a, a sort of slightly, slightly, I don't know, not particularly likable, mm-hmm. uh, upper middle class couple living in Brooklyn, and sort of, you know, the 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 the, the, the story, as you say, is about it being bit her being bitten by a cat and finding all kinds of reasons not to go to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would like to just say, I mean, if you want to read about Paula Fox's life, Paula Fox had led a fairly remarkable life. Her first book wasn't published till she was in her early forties. Um, she had a baby when she was quite young, uh, who she gave away for adoption, um, who she discovered later in life. Um, Unbeknownst to her, she thereby, she therefore became the grandmother of Courtney Love, which is a, mm. a slightly terrifying <laughs> thing to have yeah. brought into the world. Courtney Love and Paula Fox did not get on. They had, no. Um, I was trying to think of a British equivalent of that. And it, was, it was as if Anita Bruckner found out that Jessie J was her granddaughter. <laughs> Let's propagate that room. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we do that, we do a lot for Bruckner on that list. Here, yeah, We've that not done true. that yet. She um, is she is she is a bit. I mean, Paula yeah. Fox. She is Brucknerian. But, I, but I would also like to draw attention. I, I just like to say a little bit about her children's books. So I read a couple. She she had a, a long career as a children's author. She ran the she won the Newbury uh, Medal for the Slave Dancer in the early seventies and. 
she won the Hans Christian Andersen medal. And I, I read a couple of her books. The Slave Dancer is a, is a book about... Um, a still controversial book about a uh, white boy who is press-ganged onto a slaver to play the fife for the slaves to dance to. And um, it's controversial because it was controversial because of its use of language when it was published, and it's controversial now because it is one of the most terrifying and horrifying accounts of that process that you would ever read. Um, But she also uh, wrote a novel in the 60s, which totally blew me away, a children's novel, a short children's novel called How Many Miles to Babylon. It's published by Puffin in the UK. Kay Webb, who we, we, we venerate here. <laughs> Kay, this is the opening sentence of Kay Webb's blurb for How Many Miles to Babylon in the, in the front of this Puffin Books edition from the early 70s. It's Kay Webb and Biddy Baxter, basically. That's, that's our go. childhood. <laughs> handy. What do you do if you are a very small boy without anyone to look after you properly, and you are forced by three bullies to kidnap dogs and hide them underneath a derelict nightmarish funfair while they wait for owners to offer a reward. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) who's not in immediately? Anyway, this book, How Many Miles to Babylon, I thought was totally remarkable. Um, And I just would like to read uh, a very brief bit from this, and partly to contrast it with William, with what you were reading, mm. that the different registers of her writing will become immediately mm. clear here. Um, so the young boy who's about ten years old at most, they've just escaped from the nightmarish funfair, and the three bullies are cycling up to Coney Island with him on the back of the bike. Sleeping, James leaned against Gino's back. They were going at great speed now through the park, down the long slopes, around curves. Coney Island, where was that? He closed his eyes. He was more tired than he had ever been in his life. They were taking him farther and farther away from all the places he knew. He and Gladys, Gladys being a little dog that they've kidnapped, James fell asleep. He awoke to find himself flying beneath a black sky. His cheek, pushed up against the leather of Gino's coat, was warm and damp. But when he moved his head, the air was icy. He heard a bumping sound as though something were being dragged over boards. There was a peculiar smell. It tickled his nose and it was sharp and clear. Sometimes the smell was like wet wood. There was another sound, louder than the bumping, a sound like many people murmuring down a hall, just far enough away so that he couldn't make out what was being said. He hoped Gladys was all right. She was probably warmer than he was. At least she had fur. They rode under a street lamp. Blue, riding next to Gino, cried, Man, it's so cold out here, so cold! James strained to see where he was. The road they were riding on was made of wide black boards. Along it ran a fence made of iron pipes. By squinting, James could make out, below them, a white line which moved constantly. First it was far away. Then it rushed forward, broke and when it broke there came the sound of murmuring what's that james called out to blue what's that echoed blue shaking his head prince you don't know nothing that is the atlantic ocean (laughs) very good Ah. now it was said by several people when paula fox died and julia eccleshare said it in her in her guardian obituary 
that the thing that Paula Fox excelled at in her children's writing was portraying children who had been wrenched from familiar surroundings from the perspective of the child. I've never, and this is not, this sounds like hyperbole, it's not hyperbole. I don't think I've ever read a better book about of, the, of a lost child from the child's perspective than How Many Miles to Babylon. And as that, I hope that that extract just demonstrated because she's fantastic mm-hmm. at presenting, if you were a little boy from Brooklyn, who'd never see, been taken to Coney Island. Yeah, what great. is that thing over there? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Well, actually, one thing that, that reminded me of, of, that I was so excited to, also in Desperate Characters was the way she writes dialogue is, I think, absolutely brilliant. And, and you know, there's page after page in Desperate Characters that you could use as a sort of, you know, just a, a, a brilliant example of how to write dialogue how she has these several strands of thought and talk into interweaving while you know you're always yeah. absolutely sure you know where you are you know what's going on i mean I, I i think that's the thing about the book is is it's such it's such a mixture it's mm. so, there's so much in there just I one really small passage but just you know you wouldn't think that the person who wrote as lyrically mm. as you just could turn in a paragraph like this this is, uh, this is Sophie on the subway. Then, to her dismay, her eyes filled with tears. She found a handkerchief in her bag and sheltered behind a cold drink dispenser. There she found two messages. One, written in chalk, said, Kiss me, someone. And the other, scratched with a key or a knife, said, Fuck everybody except Linda. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just those little kind of imagistic mm. things that she... Uh, it, it's, oh, anyway, I, 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 I think everybody sort of says... It's a book to read more than once. And as I think you said earlier, um, William, that is got to be the sign of something good. Well, and it ends, with a, it ends with an extraordinary image that you could sort of interrogate for, for days and days and days. And, it, and it's a wonderful ending in that it doesn't tie anything up in a bow. Nope. It, just, it just leaves you, again, faced with something mysterious and, um, and, uh, uh, and suggesting meaning, but it's for you to work out what that might be. Uh, well, we're not, gonna, we're not really going to add anything to that. <laughs> I think that's for, let's leave it in that indeterminate place and, and say uh, thank you, William. Um, particularly, uh, again, I've now got another favourite book, yeah. <laughs> as seems to be mm-hmm. the, the, the pattern in this <laughs> podcast. Thank you to William Fines, to our producer, Matt Hall, uh, and to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook at Backlisted Pod, uh, and on our Unbound page on the Unbound site, unbound.com forward slash Backlisted. And if you listen to us on your iPod, it would be great if you could visit the newly renamed Apple Podcast Store to uh, mm. leave us a, a review. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, thank you and good night. Uh, thanks, everyone. Hey, Teo, let's hear some of that back. <laughs> it's a joke between me and me. <laughs> you can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.